Hello, this is Josh, and you're listening to The Invitation. In this spiritual conversation number 10, I talk with my old friend David Taylor about his forthcoming book, Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. Psalms are training us to, to speak Christian, as it were, to think Christian, to be gospel-wired in our brains, that our hearts would have these certain instincts and our bodies would have certain, you know, habituated ways of being in the world. I have been offering David Taylor my many thanks over the years. David introduced me to my wife, Susanna. He gave me my first substantial publishing opportunity, and David also helped me make the choice to do my graduate studies at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. So the story goes like this. After college in Chicago, I ended up in Oklahoma City to serve as an intern at a new church plant. And I thought that I was moving there to what I perceived as the a-cultural capital of the universe because I needed to get over my enlarged, artsy ego. The idea was that I needed to move to Oklahoma to lead Bible studies with oaky frat boys as a kind of repentance for finding my identity in being an artist instead of my identity being found in Jesus. The church that I was part of had a reach into many of the college campuses around Oklahoma City. And as I went to each campus to lead worship or to teach in small groups, of course, the Holy Spirit surprised me and I discovered there on all these college campuses many visual artists, creative writers, and musicians. And then one thing led to another, and we were in the midst of a full-fledged arts ministry. That church plant is called Bridgeway Church. We met in a warehouse, the large back room of which became a makeshift art gallery and a music venue with a cafe. This was back in 1998 when I realized that I still had pretty large questions about the church and culture that needed to be worked out in some sort of academic context. So then I discovered Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, that it offered a master's degree with a concentration in arts and theology. I knew that this was a school where Gordon Fee, J.I. Packer, Bruce Waltke, and Eugene Peterson taught so I assumed it must be a good place. And when I called Regent as a prospective student, the admissions department directed me and my big questions to one of their star graduates, a one David Taylor, who is an arts pastor in Austin, Texas. I then spent over an hour on the phone with David, So in thanks and gratitude, I sent him one of my early recordings. And then a year later after that, I had started graduate studies at Regent. 
and David flew me from Vancouver to Austin to play one of his summer concerts. So I came to learn that over the course of several years during the summer, David would host not just one single arts event, but in true Austin, Texas, big style, he would host a series of events that spanned several weeks. Art gallery openings, a couple music performances, a mini film festival that booked a local theater, along with several public conversations about faith and the arts. have been the summer of 2002, I believe. I played there in Austin a concert, read some poems, and afterwards was introduced to Susanna Childress, a spirited, bright-eyed PhD candidate in creative writing at Florida State University. She was back to Austin, where she had done her master's for this arts conference. I was super glad to meet her. Then fast forward another couple years, and Susanna and I are married. And a couple years after that, David invited me to contribute an essay to a book he was editing called For the Beauty of the Church, Casting a Vision for the Arts. exciting thing was that David was inviting all of these other A-list authors and teachers to contribute to the book. Andy Crouch, Lauren Winner, John Whitfleet, the theologian Jeremy Begbie, and one of my favorites, Eugene Peterson. Then on top of that, David was going to host a conference in conjunction with the launch of this book. In the midst of all of this, I wanted to ask David to hold his horses, to slow down. I was wondering why he was being so greatly ambitious. And I asked him, you know, shouldn't we just start with something more simple and humble? Maybe a conference that gathers all the others that we know who are doing some sort of arts ministry. But then... When that April 2008 conference was launched, there was some 750 people in attendance. That conference was called Transforming Culture, a Vision for the Church and the Arts. And David was truly and honestly the darling of that event. David had attained that platform because he had been so faithfully serving as a faith and arts leader in the Austin area for many years. And I'm gushing here about David, I know. And what I hope you hear in this conversation I have with him is our deep joy of mutual respect. This kind of affection that we have, that we put on display here, very well may be the greatest gift for you to bear witness to in this episode. We live in a culture of heaviness, There's questions today about the church and its relationship to the state, and we have on the news constant reminders of various forms of oppression, violence, and abuse that is going on in and outside the church. There's indeed much to lament. There's much for us to wade through each day. 
Yet here in the face of that darkness, here I offer you the gift of two friends attempting to do significant things in the name of Jesus. And David has gone on to do some more fantastic things. Dr. David O. Taylor is the director of Brem, Texas of Fuller Seminary. This is an initiative to revitalize the church through the arts. David has also published a book called The Theater of God's Glory, Calvin, Creation, and the Liturgical Arts. David co-edited the book Contemporary Art and the Church, a conversation between two worlds. And his book Glimpses of the New Creation, Worship, and the Formative Power of the Arts was published just last September in 2019. In my conversation here with David, we discuss his book, Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. This book is due out next month, March 2020. And I also want to point out that David and his wife, Phaedra, also created a set of prayer cards to companion the book as a tangible way to help individuals, families, small groups, and communities to pray the book of the Psalms. Phaedra is a fantastic artist. Susanna and I have one of her prints hanging above our kitchen table. So I'm excited for you to see these cards. Each card features an original watercolor illustration by Phaedra that corresponds to a specific theme in the Psalms. And the text on the back of each card offers an opportunity for us to reflect on our own life in light of the good news that we discover in and through the Psalms. So I strongly encourage you to buy the book and the cards, and especially to buy those from rabbitroom.com. That's Andrew Peterson's website. He's got a store there, rabbitroom.com. And one final note about David. Something that David and I talk about here is the conversations that he facilitated between Eugene Peterson and Bono of the world-famous band U2, of course, And then David also did a personal interview just between him and Bono, and you can check these out on YouTube. My prayer is that by listening to this conversation, you will see that David's savvy, his ambition, his creativity, all of these things are Christ-focused. David is also an ordained Anglican priest. There is much for us to say here about the humbling leveling effect of many years of success combined with failures, the suffering that happens with family, work, blood, sweat, and tears. So much to be said about that. And when, as I sat with David, I noticed in him a kind of generous humility in a more clear and defined way than I've ever seen in him before. And so here is the last thing that I'll offer as the refrain that I share with you before each invitation podcast episode. Remember, the invitation is not just a space for us to talk about the ideas of prayer, but an invitation to actually pray so that you would go into your secret place to open yourself to God in a deeper, 
and a new transformative surrender to his love and mercy. If you haven't already spent some time with the Invitations Guided Prayers and Meditations, please do consider going back to the Invitation Podcast number one. Number one, two, and three are all guided episodes of prayers and meditation. There are several others that are filtered throughout our 40-some episodes. More recently, I have begun an introduction to a new series that I'm calling Deeper Living Space. That's episode 41. So I trust that with all these resources, these conversations, these guided prayers, that you are drawing closer to Jesus in new and merciful ways. May you be blessed as you listen. Amen. Psalm 42.8 from the message My life is God's prayer Whatever else they are, the Psalms are prayers They're prayers for people who already know how to pray as well as for those who don't know how to pray at all They're prayers for those who wish to pray to God with all their heart The German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a lecture given to students on July 31st, 1935, says this, The only way to understand the Psalms is on your knees, the whole congregation praying the words of the Psalms with all its strength. My own prayer life comes and goes. At times I have prayed faithfully every morning before starting the day's work. At other times I have managed only tired prayers at the end of the day, and they have often not been very good prayers. At still other times, I had found myself without prayer, or more truthfully, without any desire to pray. What the Psalms have offered me is a beginning. To paraphrase Thomas Merton, the Psalms have become my bread of heaven in the wilderness of my exodus. They have nourished my tired heart in the hour of my need, and they have nudged me to try again. In the Psalms, we find words from God, we find words about God, and we find words to God. And all these words are the very words that you and I need to pray well. All such words teach us how to talk to God and are such a grammar for talking with God. In Bonhoeffer's words, it is not our prayers that interpret the Psalms, but the Psalms that interpret our prayers. Said otherwise, in putting the words of the Psalms on our lips, we enter into a school of prayer. In such a school, we become students, and we never stop being students of such prayers, learning how to talk to God and with God. The Psalms are, in this way, what Eugene Peterson calls prayer masters. He writes, We apprentice ourselves to these masters, acquiring facility and using the tools by which we become more and more ourselves. If we are willfully ignorant of the Psalms, we are not thereby excluded from praying, but we will have to hack our way through formidable country by trial and error and with inferior tools. End quote. Prayer is a funny thing, of course. In its simplest terms, it is about talking to God and listening to God. In practice, prayer is anything but simple. Pentecostals pray in tongues, 
Korean Presbyterians pray out loud all at the same time. Benedictine monks pray in Latin or in silence, and little children ramble to God in prayer while adults struggle to talk to God or talk to God in habituated ways, both off the cuff and with scripted words, or at times formally and at other times informally. The Psalms make space for all such prayers and for all such people too. As a fourth century pastor Basil the Great saw it, the Psalms invite all alike. As he says, to novices, it is a beginning, to those who are advancing, an increase, to those who are concluding, a confirmation. Jesus prayed the Psalms. Paul exhorted the early church to pray the Psalms. Today, both Jews and Christians pray the Psalms, along with popes, peasants, and pop stars. The Psalms make space for all such people to pray the most honest prayers God will ever hear. So if we wish to make the most of the Psalms, I suggest that we must not only understand them as prayers, we must also understand how they in fact do prayer. And they show us how to do this kind of prayer in the following ways, so on and so forth. So how long have you been anticipating this book and putting this together? How long have you been thinking about it? Not that long. It actually came through the back door. Okay. It's not something <coughs> I imagined myself writing. I'm not an expert on the Psalms. I'm not a scholar on the mm-hmm. Psalms. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. Mm-hmm. But after the Eugene Peterson and Bono film came out, I found myself being asked questions by people about the Psalms. And I knew enough that I could answer <laughs> You know, something uh, with a measure of intelligence, but uh, ended up doing a lot of homework on the fly. Mm-hmm. And I ended up doing so much homework that I started building up a body of I guess, insight or reflection or commentary on the Psalms. But what really happened is as I acquired books on the Psalms to help me know how to talk to others about the Psalms, I discovered a gap mm-hmm. in the literature, as it were. And there is this pretty substantial collection of scholarly resources, which are good, but largely inaccessible to lay people, normal mm-hmm. people. And then there is like a smallerish body of what I might call like devotional type resources. And they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, like daily devotions. Eugene Peterson has one. Tim Keller, Tim and Kathy Keller have one. <clears throat> Um, lots of folks have created these kind of daily or, you know, occasional devotional type books, but there wasn't something in the middle Mm. that would take all the good that scholars might offer, but make it a little bit more accessible, Mm -hmm. uh, in everyday language, um, something that, you know, it'd be like an essay you read on Christianity Today and it's intelligible English and... Mm -hmm. You know, not to me fancy words, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that would say, "Hey, here's basically what the Psalms are on about, and you can do it." Mm-hmm. But not just you can do it, but in fact, Christians have been doing it for two thousand years, rather comprehensively. Mm-hmm. And twentieth, twenty-first century Christians are in fact in the minority in terms of our usage of the Psalms. So. Mm-hmm. So we are the ones that actually have to make an argument why we don't use the Psalms. Mm-hmm. 
And so I found myself inspired and compelled and thought, well, shoot, I guess I could write a book on the Psalms. But I still had this fear and trembling because I have these Old Testament scholars and I thought, I, I can't. I can't do what you do. Mm. But then I guess you can say the Holy Spirit liberated me from that anxiety and uh, I guess encouraged me to consider the possibility that I could put my pastor hat on. Sure. And I could write as a pastor and then <laughs> no anxieties there, at least at one level. Like I don't have to worry about yeah. the things that they worry about as scholars. Mm. I can simply say, hey, here are all the great things you've already done on my behalf as a pastor. I'll just translate those. Yeah. I don't have to pretend I know things because, you know, I don't have to pretend. But I can take the goods that you all have labored and produced and put out into the wood world mm -hmm. and offer them in accessible ways to mm -hmm. other folks. As a pastor, even though I'm not a working pastor, I still find myself haunted by the fact that so many people, wonderful people, wonderful Christians, rather long-standing Christians, struggle to pray on a regular basis, mm. or find themselves after a certain season or a number of years wearing out, mm. wearing down, getting stuck, giving up, yeah. and feeling a tremendous amount of compassion. I've worn out and gotten stuck and sure. given up. So it's not like it's foreign to me. I get it. Uh, but thinking, how could I be helpful to Christians who find themselves uninspired to pray or negative inertia? Mm -hmm. Or after so many days and weeks and months of not praying, easy, finding, uh, finding it uh, rather easy to not pray, mm -hmm because now you have this habit of not praying and so you don't pray or used to sort of very sporadic kind of praying. And so then that got me to thinking, I could. what if I wrote a book that had a very explicit devotional element to it? Mm -hmm. So then I ended up on sort of this plan of exploring specific themes in the Psalms, mm -hmm. like honesty and community and prayer and poetry and sadness and anger, joy, enemies, justice, death, life, mm -hmm. nations, creation, kind of these comprehensive themes. Mm -hmm. So it's not an introduction to the Psalms because other books actually do that. Mm -hmm. But it's more kind of a, a helicopter kind of view of things that kind of recur throughout the Psalms mm -hmm. with kind of the presumed question, if we were to only read the Psalms, what kind of human beings would we become? Mm -hmm. So then I had this idea, okay, I'll write a smallish essay, and then after each chapter have questions, mm -hmm. you know, for discussion, and then exercises. Okay. A little bit um, spiritual classics, uh, yeah. devotional classics, is yeah. that what it's called? Yeah. The, Richard, you know, Richard and, yeah, Foster. And Brian. Brian. Yeah. Um, just always found those very helpful. So I, I basically, you know, copied from that. And then at the end of each chapter, I wrote a prayer. Mm. So... That then became the task, and and then I finished writing it. Um, when are we? Last spring, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, last spring I finished. And then I'll just finish by saying this: yeah. that we were in Houston at the time, and one of Phaedra's friends, who is 
I guess what you could say, spiritual but not religious, told me, she's wonderful, she's a sweet friend, wonderful friend, and she said very bluntly, I'm never going to read your book. I don't read (laughs) books, I'm not going to read your book, but if you made cards, I'd read it. I'd read those cards. So she has tarot cards, which is a very common thing these days for many, many people. Surprise to me. But uh, it's this thing, this object that you can hold in your hand and look at and be inspired and so on and so forth. And um, so her two comments, I'm not going to read your book, (laughs) but I would read cards, stuck with me. And after about a week, I thought, well, shoot, I guess we could do cards. So I then asked Phaedra, my wife, if she would want to collaborate. And so she said yes. And so we produced... We've just finished there. Actually, this Monday will be completely done. So for the last six month, months, we've been working on a, a deck of cards, 15. Mm-hmm. So she's created a watercolor illustration in the wow. front. And then I wrote text on the back that has a Psalms text, th- three questions, very mm-hmm. simple, and then a, a sort of abridged versions of the prayers and the books that could then be for children, mm-hmm. families, small groups, church leaders, or spiritual but not religious, yeah, yeah. and um, and we're really excited. Like I'm really excited about it because, like, I, I I'm glad that they're that we're making them because I think I will benefit from them, <laughs> even though I'm making them. Yeah, sort yeah. of this other way of m- making it possible for new and middle and long-standing Christians to rediscover. Mm. The ability and joy of prayer, yeah. and um, so it's 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 been a, a one of my best. It has been, I think, the, my best writing experiences. Mm-hmm. It's given me so much joy to write, and I've learned a lot. I've been challenged a lot. Mm-hmm. I have a chapter on justice. I'm not a justice person. Mm-hmm. Like it's not my natural personality. It's not my natural sort of area of activity. It's something I have to always work at and get help on. You're a much more justice person. I always appreciate it. I think of you when I think of justice. Mm, thank you. So when I wrote the chapter on justice, I found myself very convicted, mm. thinking, I need to change. Mm. I don't know how, but mm. I need the change. And so, I don't know, I'm excited to see how it could help people say, I could start, I could start again. Yeah. I could try. Yeah. And I feel like if I can help people say those words and mm. try again, mm-hmm. I have succeeded. Mm-hmm. Because I have a lot of sympathy and empathy, because I, I have it myself with folks who are just, I'm tired, I'm mm-hmm. worn out. The old wineskin isn't working. I get it. So I'm hopeful that this book might help, or the cards mm-hmm. at the very least. So I hear uh, the heart, the instincts of a pastor who's trained as a theologian. Uh, looking at the church, and if you feel led to share some more about what what led you to the conversation with Bono and mm. Eugene in the first place, because um, that would be the same probably impulse. Yeah, there's a vacuum. There's a a, a, right. a space here, so we need to somehow uh, use the the tools we have in this right. way, the the platforms that. Famous people have yeah to kind of stage right. So going maybe from that video conversation, mm-hmm. those series of videos, to now something very practical. Mm-hmm. Um, the impulse is let's cover the bases. Mm. 
to uh, what I what I often say, um, offer the breadcrumbs mm-hmm. to follow mm-hmm. the way yeah. back to the presence of God. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, there's mm, that tastes good. Let's mm-hmm. so maybe if somebody caught some resonance by yeah. watching some videos, and now yeah. you have a book, and now you have these these cards, you can. Hit hit them with different. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I shouldn't. I don't, I'm trying to use uh, maybe edit here. I'm trying to avoid using uh, violent metaphors when I talk about spirituality, even though the scriptures and the mystics used them. <laughs> maybe I'll leave that in just for us to laugh with. I think that's a good one. Dude. To to approach to invite yes. people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in in uh, many ways, to actually do this. Yeah. Not just talk about it. Yeah. Just, I, I think in light of the reality that there are many people that are leaving the church or leaving the faith yeah. or transferring to a different ecclesial or theological neighborhood, mm-hmm. religious neighborhood, however you want to yeah. describe it. And I don't know what is in the water. I don't know why so many 20, 30-somethings, 40-somethings are struggling so intensely, viscerally, mm-hmm. deeply, I'm sure our political landscape in America <laughs> has something to do with it, but in my 20s I used to be a little bit more demanding mm-hmm. of myself and others. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do it, do it. You know, if you're going to go in, go all in. Mm-hmm. If you're going to follow Jesus, don't look back, you know, that, which is not unfamiliar language to the Gospels or Christian history, mm-hmm. but it's just, I was very exacting. Sure. And in my 30s, <laughs> I started experiencing weakness and failure and loss and an inability to accomplish the things that even I had set for myself. Sure. And then in this place of, of weakness, or failure, public failure, Hmm. discovering, I guess you could say for the first time, compassion, Mm -hmm. which is a shame that it takes that long. Mm. But just the the, the compassionate heart of God for me, Mm. which of course, it was always ultimately Mm. because I did not feel that there was sufficient Mm. grace. Mm. And and so then I related to everybody else that way as well, mm-hmm. especially those who are closest to me. Mm-hmm. And so mid-30s, now into my latter th- 40s, finding myself thinking if you do something, a little something, I'm going to celebrate it. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. You know, something's better than nothing, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember being in high school. And I was a runner, I was a cross-country runner, and I'd run on these public trails and I'd pass people that, you know, and let me speak frankly, and, and I'm ashamed to say this, but they're overweight. I'd make fun of them. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. fat and slow. Judging them, right? Dismissing them. And now I think, I was an idiot. Because mm. the truth is, they were trying. Mm. They were out there. They at least mm. got on the trail, wow. right? So I think about that kind of little metaphor in my own life and thinking family struggle, parents struggle, single people struggle, college mm-hmm. people struggle, older people struggle, empty nester people struggle. Like, mm-hmm. Who doesn't struggle? I guess some people 
don't have a real sense that they struggle. <laughs> I think they're in a small minority. But just thinking pastorally, my calling is just to keep encouraging. Mm-hmm. Like you, can, you can do it. You can get up. Keep mm-hmm. going. Don't give up. And in fact, when I was a pastor at Hope Chapel, I did feel like eventually my job was in thirds. Part of it was like creative, conceptual thinking, planning, imagining. A third of it was organizational, administrative, just mm-hmm. getting stuff going. And a third of it, quite literally, was encouragement. Mm-hmm. You can do it. You can do it. Don't give up. Don't give up. You can mm-hmm. do it. You can do it. Don't give up. Don't give mm-hmm. up. So then with the Bonnie Eugene thing, I mean, the way that it started was rather unusual. I actually had a dream. Mm-hmm. And this is October like 12, 2014. And uh, I have somewhat of a vivid dream life comes and goes. But in my dream, I was having a conversation with Eugene and Bono. I, I don't have any connection to Bono whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I'm not a avid U2 fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always have an admiration for sure. them. So it's super weird yeah. to wake up and think, that was, I just had a conversation with Eugene yeah. and Bono. And so at breakfast that morning, I told Fader, and I was like, isn't that weird? Isn't that awesome? It was so good. It was so vivid. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fun to like, get them together like for real? Yeah. She's like, sure, go for it. <laughs> So (laughs) I couldn't shake it. And I thought, why not? I mean, I had some notion that there was a connection between them. So the long and really, really short of it, I mean, there are interviews that I've done kind of explain the details Mm -hmm. of it. I'd originally conceived it as a public event in in California, like in Los Angeles somewhere, Mm -hmm. that it would be a one-day event on the Psalms. And we'd have, I don't know, talks or seminars or whatever throughout the whole day that would show how the Psalms inform our whole lives, not just church and worship, but everything and everywhere. And then the marquee event would be a conversation with the two of them. But uh, there was a little bit of an uh, allergy for on Bono's side and his basic, you know, his entourage yeah. to let him do something like that. It's too much of a risk. Yeah. And it was simply impossible to find a date that both of them could do. Sure. And so we went back and forth, back and forth, and then it was basically, you know, we just pulled the plug. I was like, it's not going to work. The one date that Bono could do it, I called Eugene, and he said his son was having surgery. Mm. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And I was Mm. like, that totally sucks, but it's the right decision. You know, you need to be there for your son. So I said, that's it. I tried. You know, I spent three months trying. Mm. Not the end of the world. But then Stephen Purcell, our friend, director of the Lady Lodge, mm-hmm. said, so what if you preconceived it? <laughs> I was like, well, like what? Like, why don't you do it at Eugene's house? It's not a public event. I was like, oh, it'd make me so sad not to, because I wanted other people to, you know, like be in the room and we could have this shared experience. Mm-hmm. And I felt a little bit selfish, so just be, you know, a small group. <clears throat> but he said, you might get more success that way. Like yeah. You might get a conversation in that setting that you won't get if they're on the stage performing, as mm-hmm. it were. So I said, man, I don't know. Maybe you're right. And so, you know, I called Eugene. You know, would you be up at the sure? And called Bono's people, and they said, let me ask him. And he said yes. And so it's just a matter of finding a date. And so there was one date in the spring of 2015. Worked for both of them, Sunday afternoon, April 19th. So you 2 was in Vancouver rehearsing for the tour, the Songs mm-hmm. of an uh, Experience tour. Mm-hmm. So he flew down in a jet with two assistants. I flew up. Uh, Nate Clark from Fourth Line Films came out with his film crew. Mm-hmm. We spent a couple hours, and that was that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the uh, the, the the fruit of what, to to bring this back to uh-huh. how this and your journey and your gifts and what God's showing you about the Psalms. Mm. Uh, how does this connect then with the book and what, what kind of fruit do, do you see? Yeah. Well, it actually goes back to Regent College. Yeah. So spring of 96, I'm taking Eugene's course, Biblical Spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I talk about this in, in the introduction just kind of to set up why this book exists. Yeah. It really goes back to that spring. He taught a course. It was fantastic. It was this survey of scripture and what kind of vision of spiritual life might it offer us if we looked at the whole of it as a whole, Mm -hmm. brought into conversation with theology and church history and literature and poetry and Greek mythology. The man, you know, he's, he's omnivorous in his interests. Sure. And he's a pastor. And so he brings that to the table, but at no point the entire semester did he give us advice like what to do with this thing. And he is himself, admittedly, allergic to those how-tos because he's reacting sure. to all the how-to movement. The over-prescription over exactly. of spiritual. And I get it, but at some point you're like, come on, man. Yeah. Don't be so fussy. And so last day, there was a night class, end of three hours, mm. he's going to leave us, and he's not going to tell us anything. I'm like, come on, dude, Seriously. So I raise my hand, young 23-year-old, <laughs> and I say, Dr. Peterson, this is amazing. I don't know what to do with it. Can you just tell us one thing, one thing? Help our brother out. So he thinks about it, and he says, tomorrow read Psalm 1, next day read Psalm 2, after that read Psalm 3, get to the end, start over. Thank you very much. Have a good night. <laughs> have, a good, you know, have a good life. And uh, I was like, wow, that's not the answer I was looking for. Something was more impressive. But I started doing it for a couple of years, nonstop. You know, it's 150 days, right? So how many months is that? Three, five months-ish. And it changed me. And it changed me in as much as I discovered um, by being immersed in this environment, this poetic, mm-hmm. you know, prayer, prayer-filled <clears throat> prayer-languaged environment, you start ticking a certain way. Your brain starts getting wired. Your instincts start kicking in. Mm-hmm. You start thinking and feeling certain things, not because you have a conscious association with a psalm, but because you're starting to, your, your software and hard drive are starting to get reshaped. And uh, I especially really enjoyed sort of those moments where you're, you're reading, it's a lament psalm for the day. I'm feeling great. And at first, it's like it's kind of like weird, and like I don't, I'm not feeling it, so I just like read it and move on. But eventually, you discover that it's an opportunity, like an invitation to to be sympathetic with somebody. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's an invitation to be neighborly, mm-hmm. rather than it's the psalms for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a benefit for me, but this it, the psalms are are profoundly communal, which is why in the book the first two chapters are the basic argument. If you're not completely vulnerable. Before God, open and unafraid, as the chapter title or the book title has it. You can't get the full benefit of the Psalms. Like you have to be vulnerable and transparent and porous. But you can't be that way without community. You just can't. You'll be undone. You'll get scared. You'll shut down. It's too hard. So you know, praying it over months and years, it it sort of cultivates this 
neighborly communal social mm-hmm. orientation, you know, instinct. Mm-hmm. And so I start praying for others, you know. I yeah. pray lament. I'm thinking of others. I'm feeling bad. I pray a song of praise. I can think of others. Yeah. And so it has this, as it were, ecstatic um, inertial force. It's, it's bringing me outside of myself mm-hmm. on a regular basis or mm-hmm. getting me over myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's, I think what I hope is that when somebody reads the book, they'll find a, a profound personal benefit, obviously, but then it attunes them to the people of God throughout the ages. It attunes them to people around them. It attunes them to the people, uh, uh, you know, that are sitting right next to them mm-hmm. that you might take for granted or you might assume they're fine, but maybe they're not fine mm-hmm. or who knows, you know, what the story is. So, I mean, that, that, that I think, you know, is, is the hope that there'll be a sense of, Mm-hmm. Of care, you know, that yeah. the, the, a, a person reading this alone or with others would experience God's care. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if I can, please, sort of please. Read, um, where is this? So one, one of my favorite parts of the Psalms, and for me personally, um, and I write about this, I'll, I'll read it and then sort of a brief comment. This is my sixth point about prayer in the Psalms. The Psalms invite us to say all kinds of things to God in prayer. This may be one of the most surprising things for newcomers to the Psalms. The Psalms don't invite us to say only a few things to God, that is, perhaps only the proper or quote-unquote holy things one supposes God wants to hear from us. The Psalms invite us to say all sorts of things. And this includes such things as, and then here I have a kind of a laundry list of things that you find in the (laughs) Psalms that we're invited to say, like, Mm -hmm. you're holy, we love you, help us, I have sinned. Forgive me, why, how long, I'm alone, defend me, have mercy, you're good, we shout for joy, remember what you've done, come again, be gracious, be the God that you say that you are, we praise you, bless us, lead me, thank you. Hmm. And then kind of end this little part saying this, the Psalms show us what prayer looks like, what prayer sounds like, what prayer says to God, and it says quite a lot. It says what needs saying. It names the joy of good news in full-throated and wholehearted ways. And it names also with full-gutted, holy, honest confession the sorrow and loss that accompany our pilgrimage on earth. Mm. And then I say more and more. So I guess what I want people, like when they see the Psalms as prayers, amongst Mm -hmm. other things, to, to realize that God cares for you, which I know sounds, I don't know, is it corny, is it cheesy, is it cliche? But... At the end of the day, I honestly think, like I think this theologically and I think this pastorally, at the end of the day, we simply want to know that we're cared for, mm-hmm. truly cared for. Did Adam and Eve, when they sinned, feel that God wasn't going to care mm-hmm. for them? Is that the one of the primordial mm-hmm. sins, fears? I will not be cared for, and therefore I will take what is mine to care for me. So I think you know, people feel cared for. They feel cared for by others. And then they, they would be inspired and, and, and capacitated to offer care hmm. to others. So I really, I, even though I don't use the language of emotional intelligence or emotional health often, I, I really do think at some level at the heart of the Psalms is this formation of emotional hmm. health so that we can be in the world and relate to others in the world in ways that are emotionally life-giving rather than destructive, mm-hmm. self-destructive or destructive of others. So. so the 
the vocabulary of the Psalter, having this diet of it daily, um, it forms in us a vocabulary that might not be immediately mm. fruitful, mm. but it has a, uh, this, it's kind of growing our heart, growing and expanding their capacity mm -hmm. to, uh, to have resources. Mm -hmm. As Eugene would say in mm -hmm. answering God, mm -hmm. uh, he describes prayer as as technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, Ironically, because uh, you know yeah. he's not about techne. No, not at all. <laughs> and so, so the Psalms then become the vocabulary that we speak back to God. And right. God's, so then that that ultimately you're saying is is a nurturing in God's love, mm -hmm. and 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 it's not um, it's not G or PG. You know, if you really go through, you know, a third of the psalms being yeah, lament, and right, then right. the very, very the dark psalms. Right, right, right. So, so I, you're saying if I have a, if I'm nourished in the psalter, and I and I really go through it, and I, I'm absorbing mm -hmm. all this, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, God's love is it never ends, it never mm -hmm. fails mm -hmm. in the context of all of this horror. Absolutely. In the context of all this suffering. Absolutely. So instead of getting a theology where I'm having to, you know, go and do systematics or do lots of Bible study, like there's an right. inherent yes. theology of being in the world and right. in God. Right. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I am a systematic theologian by training. I love it. I love teaching. I teach three courses on it. But that doesn't substitute... That alone cannot form sure. a whole human life, sure. right? And, and, of course, the Psalms by themselves can't, obviously. Uh, and the Psalms are embedded within this larger canonical mm -hmm. uh, world, and, and it's in conversation with the rest of the canon. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if we take it in isolation, I think we get into trouble. If we take the Psalms in piecemeal fashion, I think we get into trouble. I think that's where our, our hymnody and our songs sometimes get us into trouble because we have piecemealed our way. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Psalm 139 is a lovely psalm. You, you know, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, all those wonderful things, search me and know me. Mm -hmm. But the latter part of that psalm is imprecatory. And most Christians, you know, get the scissors and cut it off. We don't pray it, we don't preach it necessarily or largely. Mm -hmm. We certainly don't sing it. But I guess I would want to make the case, which I make modestly in the book, that you, you can't get the nice part without the hard part, mm -hmm. the seemingly nice, lovely mm -hmm. part, which it is lovely. It's beautiful to be known in this way, but that psalm doesn't make sense if you cut that part off mm -hmm. as a way to remind us of what may be actually rather obvious, mm -hmm. that our lives are constantly this confluence of the lovely and the horrific, mm -hmm. beautiful and ugly, however you want to put it. Mm -hmm. And how do we reckon with these seemingly disparate experiences of life, these cacophonies or chaoses or dissonance, whatever word you want to say, which, which always threaten to fracture mm -hmm. and splinter us into many pieces. And then, mm -hmm. we're, you know, most human, be no, all human beings are trying to figure out how the pieces hold together. Yeah. My upbringing, my parents, my ch church of my youth, my education, sports, Failure, success, how do they hold together? And the Psalms are in the business 
of making holes mm -hmm. out of halves and parts and pieces, as, as it were, fractured pieces. And so we pray these things, these hard things, these angry things, these imprecatory curse things as a way to name out loud, and there's a certain power in naming out loud, a reality faithfully, that is, but also to then enact and embody mm -hmm. these things that we are speaking, praying, mm -hmm. singing, so that God can make a whole of us by His grace. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, you know, here at the conference at Calvin College on worship, I gave a seminar on eulogies. Mm -hmm. And my basic argument is the way that we do eulogies commonly in Western Christendom, as it were, North America, is 100% unchristian. It's the one thing that is decidedly untheological, has nothing to do with God. Um, and then I make that case, but the, the point that I make is that a eulogy should involve telling the truth, nothing but the truth, the whole truth, so help you God including all the rotten, terrible, shameful things. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, the last word in our lives is not that, but in mm -hmm. fact the grace of God that mm -hmm. suffuses, yeah. stands before and behind, above and below mm -hmm. those things. The Psalms are training us mm -hmm. to, to speak Christian, as it were, to think Christian, to mm -hmm. be gospel-wired in our brains, mm -hmm. that our hearts would have these certain instincts and our bodies would have certain... Mm -hmm you know, habituated ways of being in the world, so that when something bad happens and bad things happen all mm -hmm. the time, things that are hurtful, disappointing, discouraging, depressing, and, you know, if you were to put a camera in everybody's home when they're having a bad day and you could actually examine a person's thoughts, mm -hmm. those instinctual thoughts are what at our genetic core in our hearts, our souls, who we really believe ourselves to be, who we really believe God to be, who we really believe others in the world to be. The Psalms are getting down at that genetic core, doing, if you will, metaphorically speaking, genetic re-engineering. Mm. So that then my body, my heart, my mind, my everything is rewired to be like Jesus, who is the true prayer-er. And again, if you look carefully at Jesus' life and ministry, it is uh, described, circumscribed, infused by the Psalms at every level. Mm. There is no way in which you can understand Jesus' life and ministry apart from how the Psalms mm. just show up mm. without quoting because nobody needs to quote mm. something that is in your bones. Mm. It's the same way with the patristic era. You don't find chapter citations. Mm -hmm. It's just what they did day after day after mm -hmm. day. So it's just part of the way that they speak their way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, not that that automatically or magically makes yeah. you a healthy human being. It doesn't mm -hmm. because you need other helps in the world. Yeah. But the Psalms offer themselves as a primary mm -hmm. help. So like when I give myself to a Netflix binge, <laughs> you know, or even just uh, uh, listening to a good song or watching a good movie, there's like a, a residue mm. of that artwork, that story, that, mm. that tune, mm. that meaning, that beat. Um, <laughs> and so I, it gets in me 
somehow, and there's a there's a lingering. Yeah. And so what we're saying is, this is what we want the Psalms to to be able to do, and that's precisely the reason why it's poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe you can speak to mm. your definition of art in the sense of the artfulness of this, in the sense that my my regular diet. Why do these TV shows or songs stick <laughs> in me in ways that I don't want them to? Or sometimes it's not that bad. Yeah. But but there's a power, a generative power to get in me. And so if I am partaking of the vocabulary of the Psalter regularly, yeah. then I'm getting that in me, in my senses, into my mind, into my heart, and even my body, um, this is the point of chant. I'm going to do um, an, a, an episode just on chant. Oh, man, that's awesome. And um, so that there's that that holy residue, that lingering yeah. in ways that are beyond my my thinking powers. Yep. Me to say, I'm yep. uh, just going to retrieve this thought. It just, it just bub- <laughs> it bubbles up instead. It's, right. just, it's just coursing. Right. The way you're describing Jesus himself... If you want to be like Jesus, a lot of us do. Yeah. Then pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms and love poetry. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of something. I do have this chapter on poetry. Um, I, I, I could just read just a very small point. Yeah. Here are the sort of the main points that I make. I mean, we could talk about this for an, for hours. Yeah, yeah. Just give but us here some the, taste. Here, the, here is the basic set of points that I make about poetry, and then I'll just read this one little part. Mm-hmm. So one thing I say is the poetry is a kind of language that says more and says it more intensely, more densely than does ordinary language. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Poetry accents the musical textures of human language. Poetry brings us into metaphor-rich territory. Mm-hmm. Poetry draws our attention to the particularity of things. Mm-hmm. Poetry invites us to slow down and to pay care-filled attention. Um, let's see, two more things. The Psalms originate in a cumulative-oriented oral culture. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to understand what a psalm means, you have to say it out loud. Yeah. Because they were created mm-hmm. to be orally rendered and orally understood. It's like an oral thing. It's like, I understand Apple's only by actually eating it. I cannot understand the meaning of apple by reading about it. I can understand something, but I cannot understand appleness mm-hmm. unless I put it in my mouth. And then I'll, whatever. I, I say other things, but I'll, I'll just read this. I have sort of in this chapter, the faith of poetry, the ways of poets, and then the poetry of faith mm-hmm. is kind of how I kind of head it. I say this, whatever else poets love, they love the wonder and the ways of words, how they sound in the ear, how they feel on the lips, and how they possess a sensory depth, which is perhaps another way of saying that they love the musicality of words. Few poets have made the most of such linguistic musicality as Dr. Seuss. <laughs> in a story, Gertrude McFuzz, language crackles with life. Quote, then the feathers popped out with a zang, with a zing. They blossomed like flowers that bloom in the spring. All fit for a queen, what a sight to behold. They sparkled like diamonds and gumdrops and gold. (laughs) Poets not only love words and the sound of words, they also protect words from being misused and abused. In this way, they are like shepherds of words. 
and they help us to feel the truth as if for the first time. In the hands of an unknown author of a popular spiritual, for instance, the cross is not just a divine act of atonement that the angels observe in a detached manner. It is, in fact, a cosmic dilemma to the angelic host. One stanza goes like this. Go down, angels, to the flood. Blow out the sun, turn the moon into blood. Come back, angels, bolt the door, because the time that's been going to be no more. In the hands of a poet, the morning sun, which we might take for granted each time we wake up, becomes, quote, a new husband leaping from his honeymoon bed, the day-breaking sun, an athlete racing to the tape, as Eugene Peterson translates Psalm 19. It becomes a perfectly particular sun seen afresh. And as G.K. Chesterton imagined it, imagines it in his book Orthodoxy, God says every morning, do it again to the sun. He does it out of sheer pleasure in this one-of-a-kind, nearly perfect sphere of hot plasma. And while poets are always telling us that grass is green or thunder loud or lips red, as C.S. Lewis once quipped, they are also always telling us that green is more than merely green, thunder more than simply loud, and lips exceedingly red. This is another way of saying that the world is more than just empirically classifiable stuff. It is wonderful stuff. Mm. It is stuff that deserves our precious time and our loving attention. Poetry slows us down enough to give God's world the attention it deserves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, poets will tell you this, Eugene Peterson would tell you this, others would tell you this, you can't speed read a poem. And that's what frustrates the rest of humankind. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's so, like, just get on with it, you know? <laughs> of course, you're married to a poet. Uh, <laughs> you know this backwards and forwards. <clears throat> but I think what Eugene is, is telling us, which we should pay attention to, and the Psalms are then modeling and offering us, is the gift without which we cannot do the good work of the kingdom. We cannot be the gospel. We cannot be a sign, instrument, and foretaste of the new creation mm -hmm. if we're in a rush. Mm -hmm. Amongst other things that poetry mm -hmm. does in the world. And I get it that poets are, are, are get anxious when we use things like does and use and functions. Mm -hmm. So be it. It's an intrinsic thing that you know, offers intrinsic pleasure and intrinsic love. It's fine. It's like an apple is good for its own sake, but it is also good because it is pleasing to the gastronomical needs of the human body. So I think poetry, you know, is, is multi-wonderful. Um, and the Psalms can train us through this musically, metaphorically dense uh, way of doing language that can say, oh, yes, in fact... That is exactly mm -hmm. what it looks like, feels like, sounds like to be sad or joyful. And it sounds in so many different ways. So mm -hmm. every hues of joy in the Psalms. I was with uh, Todd Pickett earlier this week, the chaplain of Biola. And he was, we were talking about vocabulary and speech. And he was, uh, I can't remember who he's quoting, but uh, that speech somebody commented that speech is like we're singing mm. back to each other mm. how, how musical mm -hmm. speech is already yeah so what a poet is doing is monopolizing on yeah. that musicality right 
So this is why we, we say it out loud. Um, the arts allow us access into the meaning. Yeah. It's, it, this is the, the tensions theologically, which right. is my master's degree with, you know, how, how over-realized we try yeah. to say right. the incarnational. We use right. throw that vocabulary around. What I want to say is that, throw out that big word of ontology. <laughs> That's it's a, a good ph- word. It's a philosophy of being <laughs> the substance yeah. that, that, that substantially the way God works, if we're made in his image. Yeah. He, his fingerprints right. are on creation. So we're reading it down, mm-hmm. not up. You mm-hmm. know, this is the way God has imprinted us. Right. Not that we are God, but we are in His image. So right. Right. the way we speak, why is Jesus the Word? Mm-hmm. Because the incarnate reality of our existence is enfleshed spirits, mm-hmm. is this com- coming together. So it would make sense for people that are praying to, to get more into it mm-hmm. through creative mm-hmm. means. And mm-hmm. so I've done that for so long with the worship arts, with music and, you know, publicly and uh, as a burned-out worship leader. Uh, I am so eager to help people practice silence. Mm-hmm. We could talk about the ontology of silence. Yes, but, amen. But... But if we were going to bring into the deepest parts of ourselves a vocabulary, it could be the music yeah. already intrinsic in the Psalter. So, and what I like about what you're saying earlier is, uh, which, which is really this tacit place of our faith. Mm. What do we really believe? That the, that the Psalms are messy on purpose mm. because they get into the messiness of what I really do or don't mm-hmm. believe. Yeah. So I can be honest yeah. to, with myself about what I do or don't believe. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'll just say it, one of the things I say in, in this book, which I also say in the book that I just published this past fall, Glimpses of the New Creation, which is where I ask, how do the arts, what is it that the arts do, the different media of arts? What is poetry? What is music? What is drama? What is, yeah. you know, dance? Like, What's the machine like the that comprises dance? Yeah. And and then I ask, how does it what kind of human beings does it make possible in the world when we mm-hmm. do these media? And so what I argue is here is just that it is through the poetry, not despite or beyond it, that we mm-hmm. come to the knowledge of God. Which mm-hmm. is of course I think so many people want to get around. Well, what's the point? Well, the point is through. The point there's no you can't get around it. It's like getting around the cosmos. You can't. Yeah. Um, yeah so the um, the other larger theme that I hear in, in our conversation is is the word surrender. Hmm. Um, so why do people struggle with the Psalms? Um, I don't understand it. It's poetry. Yeah. I don't. I, we're not right. as a culture tuned into reading poetry um, yeah. and then what you're talking about in terms of the the dark you know the trouble sure. the, these these parts of the psalms that we, we just don't feel comfortable with right and then um, the slowing mm. nature of it right um, these are at least three we could probably sit here <laughs> and mean, come up with so many other reasons list, yeah but but the psalms yeah. are enormous and and it requires us to surrender to them right in some sense to to, not that I need, this is the trouble a lot of us have, and, and 
reading the scriptures is we want to understand them. Mm. And of course, the Spirit wants to help us understand truth, but we come through that through a surrender yeah. first of the right. will. Yeah, well, I'll say this. A friend of mine, not a Christian, started reading the Psalms, and one of his first uh, comments to me was, whoever this David poet guy is, he sure complains a lot. <laughs> like, he just needs to get, like, like buck up. Like, don't be such a whiner. And I thought that was hilarious because I was like, well, I guess so, you know. And it is true, you know, the bulk of the Psalms are laments. Mm -hmm. And then the trajectory, the arc is towards praise, which is, you know, the movement of the Psalter moves towards sort of this expansive symphonic praise. But it still carries with it that, you know, that undertone of of lament. Like you never, the music never drops the minor key. Mm. It still gets embedded. Mm. It's part of the song. Mm. But Psalm 150 is an, is, is an eschatological psalm. Mm-hmm. It's all praise. That yet mm-hmm. awaits us. But we can, we can sing ourselves into our future. I can sing myself into a new being. Mm-hmm. But I have to trust, and to trust, I have to surrender. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my other seminar here at the conference was on the curse psalms, and I was showing how the curse psalms are related to profane language and, and ultimately... These curse, angry, imprecatory psalms, while they give us permission to say things that some of us never thought we could ever say with a clean conscience mm-hmm. to God's face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can say some rather visceral, angry things about our enemies. Mm-hmm. Enemy language is there for a reason. Um, but ultimately, and I think Psalm 139 models this for us, we are free to name enemies, sure. to describe enemies, to say how mad we are mm-hmm. at enemy-like things that happen in the world, how we've been hurt. <clears throat> but then we end with saying, search me, yeah. I yield, I cede. Mm. And so sort of the basic argument I make, at least in, in these, the two chapters in the book on anger and, and enemies, is that ultimately these are prayers of relinquishment. Mm-hmm. So I, I can I can throw a fit I can throw a tantrum if yeah. you will yeah. uh, with God I I can I can tell him off mm-hmm. which is terrifying most of us yeah don't have that as part of our repertoire in our church life or devotional life but that's what the Psalms are offering us to do but in a sense it is still Jacobean you're still with one hand you're holding on and with the other you're punching mm-hmm. but you're holding on. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you get your hip socket, <laughs> you know, adjusted therapeutically speaking. But uh, and uh, uh, other occasions you choose, yeah. you, but you're still holding on. You're, you're just, it's like a child who's so beside themselves, holding on to your shirt, mm-hmm. angry, but they're still holding on because you're the one mm-hmm. that can care for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that sense of, I cede, I yield, yeah. I trust, mm-hmm. I surrender. I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah, but I want to want to. Yeah, and um, I think it's really beautiful, mm-hmm. and certainly when a community does that well together, mm-hmm. it's one of the most powerful things. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
you know, I, I, I think it's beautiful. I think beauty is powerful. Mm-hmm. I think the crucified Christ is the truly beautiful one. Mm-hmm. And the Psalms show us mm-hmm. how to give ourselves, surrender ourselves to the source of all that is beautiful, mm-hmm. which, you know, retains the wounds are there. Mm-hmm. You know, the Psalms retain the wounds mm-hmm. of our own broken anatomies. Mm-hmm. Our broken hearts. It's always, it's always, it's always good news. Mm. But you, you have to launder yourself through them, day after day, month after month, life after life. You, you can take a break, of course, but mm. it's like you just you have to keep immersing, keep swimming, keep mm. soaking yourself in together with others, mm. and then you know they they work this miracle. Truly, it's a miracle. Well, David Taylor, thank you for sitting to have this this chat. It's been very helpful for me, and I'm sure it'll be helpful for many others. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So here's the challenging question that David gives us a chance to think about. To what extent do you express your attention your thoughts, your loves, your questions, laments, sadness, and even angers through the Psalms. my time with David challenged about my own psalm reading and praying. The question is, what is the Holy Spirit drawing you and me to next in our journey of praying with the psalms? David is helping us understand that the vocabulary of the 150 psalms in the scriptures covers the full span of our human experience, and that by praying them all in regular daily rhythms, we will have a more thorough, more whole vocabulary to talk to God with and to be filled with the gospel. And here is a stinging challenge for the evangelical Protestant Bible church brothers and sisters that I grew up with. We love to study and preach the scriptures. Yet, how much scripture reading and scripture praying do we practice? And specifically here, to what extent do we allow the poetry of the Psalms to saturate our imaginations, our hearts, and minds? Some monastic communities pray through the entire set of 150 psalms once a month. And when we give ourselves to this kind of regular daily reading of the scriptures, 
so that the scripture saturates our hearts and minds, we become a whole other kind of Bible-believing Christian. Now let's recall here, these kinds of spiritual discipline challenges are not about our spiritual performance to observe a religious duty. This is about responding to and cooperating with God's love so that I can acquire more and more of His person, more and more of His grace and mercy in my life. Thanks so much for listening to this talk with David. I'm going to follow this episode up with my discussion about chanting the Psalms with Lacey Finn Borgo. I had a fantastic discussion with A.J. Sherrill and Sharon Garlow-Brown in our February public conversation at the Dominican Center on the role of contemplative spirituality and spiritual direction in the context of the local church. And I hope to have that conversation produced and available to you within a month. The next public conversation at the Dominican Center is with Fred Bonson to discuss his journey from permaculture farming to Thomas Merton and the connections between environmental care and contemplative spirituality. This conversation with Fred will be at the Dominican Center on April 15th at 6.30 p.m. You can register for that at dominicancenter.com. I am sad to say that I'm having to pull out of the annual pastor's contemplative prayer retreat in order for me to continue in my own healthy practices of work, family, and prayer. I'm just going to have to cancel this event this year. I am sorry for that. However, I will be opening registration for next year's two cohorts in the Invitation School of Prayer. One group will meet here in my Holland, Michigan space, and the other group will meet at Mars Hill in Granville, Michigan. If you're interested in a guided communal journey that will help you look at your psalm reading and your other daily disciplines, this eight-month extended retreat may be for you. The first four months, we practice the same rule of life while studying and praying and writing our own rules of prayer that we will then begin to practice for our second four months in January. And this whole journey then from the first half, the first four months to the second four months is supported and practiced within the goodness of a community cohort and that includes two monthly meetings on Monday nights.
I'd also like to mention that next September through May, I will also be offering the spiritual exercises. Some refer to it as the 19th annotation of the Ignatian Retreat. I'm still praying through that and figuring out how to get the word out. If you're interested in the spiritual exercises, please email me at josh at invitationpodcast.org. There's also some other new formation offerings that are coming together, both in and outside of the prison, that I want to keep you updated on. If you have not yet subscribed to the invitation, please do so by visiting our website. That's invitationpodcast.org. And if the invitation has been especially helpful for you in your journey toward God, please consider offering a one-time donation. Or even better, if you want the invitation as a resource for you and others in and outside of a prison, if you want this resource to be sustainable and to flourish, please pray about becoming a sustaining monthly donor. The invitation is a 501c3 that we are trusting to the direction of the Holy Spirit. It would be a gift and an honor for you to partner more actively with us in this ministry. The greatest gift, of course, for you to offer is to recommend the invitation to a friend, a pastor, a church, or a small group. The invitation is a practice of spiritual direction invigorated by the movements of the Holy Spirit in a prison. And what that means is that I am on a mission to serve the church through the prison. Because I have the privilege of witnessing God in and among a group of men incarcerated in a prison, I leave that prison full of wonder and enthusiasm with renewed faith for how God can help all of us, how God can work through pastors and local churches. And I can't do these things without your help. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey thus far. So until next time, may the Holy Spirit draw you closer to the life and the love of Jesus, that you would know that God is closer to you than you are to yourself, and that you would know in the language of Psalm 4 that he has set apart the godly for himself. Amen. Amen.